The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Eric Fear, President and CEO of Silvercrest Metals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SIL. Silvercrest is a Canadian precious metals exploration company headquartered in Vancouver, B.C. that's focused on new discoveries, value-added acquisitions, and targeting production in Mexico's historic precious metals district, including three properties in prolific Sonora State. The company was formed following the acquisition of Silvercrest Mines by First Majestic Silver Corporation. Reporting from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. Eric, welcome to the program. Hey, great, Alice. Thanks for having me on. Now, you are part of the management team of the previous incarnation called Silver Crest Mines. And that, of course, was vented into First Majestic Silver. And one of the reasons that you were acquired is because your management team was really successful in finding a property, developing it, getting ready to take it into production, and in fact, producing. Tell us about the area in Sonora State, Mexico, where you've had that success. Yeah, the uh, area, and we continue to work in the area with the new company, which is Silvercrest Metals, is the state of Sonora. We like Sonora because it's very accessible, great infrastructure. We understand the social commitments you need to have, the political framework in order to permit things, move them along, working with the governments. And overall, we really enjoy working in in northern Mexico. I'm given a lot of projects to look at in southern Mexico. I kind of shy away from them. You hear about the security problems. A lot of those are in the southern part of Mexico, not in the northern part. There are still some hot areas. You just stay out of those areas. It's all common sense when it comes to security in Mexico. Now, of course, one of the flagship properties of Silvercrest Metals is the Las Chispas property in Sonora State, Mexico. How did you keep this from bending into First Majestic? Las Chispas is located 25 kilometers north of the Santa Elena mine, which was the flagship of Silvercrest Mines and now is the flagship of First Majestic. So about two years ago, when we were doing regional exploration, we came upon the, it's called a district. This is a historic mining district, but it had quite a bit of problems legally over the last 20 years. One of the reasons why it hasn't been explored. I went in, I resolved those legal problems over the last two years under the flagship of Silvercrest Mines and the Santa Elena Mine and successfully concluded those negotiations when we were closing the deal with First Majestic in October of 2015. Now, when we were closing that deal, I was approached by First Majestic to ask, well, would you walk away if you didn't get this and amongst other things? And I said, yeah, we won't close this deal with First Majestic if I don't get Los Chispas and a few other 
parts of the deal that we had negotiated. And they accepted that, and we walked away. It wasn't something that they gave to me. I pretty much took it, and I'd spent two years working on it, so I definitely wanted to have time to look for further value under Silvercrest Metals. Now, will you be taking this property into full production? That's an alternative. We've done it before. We can do it again. So primarily, you're involved with further identifying the resource. And at some point, it's not impossible that you would maybe vend this out over again to a company like First Majestic. You always got to follow that path, Ellis, of whether you can develop yourself and put it into production or sell it off in the future. Whichever is best for the shareholders of the company, whichever gives you the maximum value for the company. And there's absolutely no desperation to do anything of that nature, is there? No, we're not desperate. We are a cash-rich, over $7 million in the bank, junior explorer in Mexico. We will have a tight control and keep that bank balance as close as we can as we continue to do some exploration. Of course, you need to spend some dollars, but we've proven time and time again, the management team, that we can have strict cost controls and really add value to the market cap and the the share price of the company without spending a tremendous amount of dollars. I mean, a lot of the success with Silvercrest Mines is its foundation. And part of that foundation is don't overcommit the company to a lot of expenditures on a property as you continue to explore, develop, and put it in production. We've done that at Las Chispas. We did it at the Santa Elena mine. You want to spend your dollars definitely wisely, definitely in this market or any market. And that's why we're here and have had success and and the reputation to follow through. Now, the obvious bear in the room, and I've said this before, is the bear market that we're in right now. You feel you have enough money to ride that out? We've set up a budget for the next three years. So my feeling in this market, and I'm a cycle kind of guy, they come every about every seven years. We're probably four to five years into this. So I'm looking at late 2017 to really see the rise in tide coming, if you believe in the cycles. This is my fourth cycle in my career. So we want to conserve our cash, make a discovery at our flagship, the Lost Chispas and Silvercrest Metals and then look for that rise in tide and be prepared to develop it and put it into production. Or if it makes a lot of sense, put it into another company and do it again. I might add that the shareholders that followed you all the way through your success with Silvercrest Mines are probably, some of them are involved with Silvercrest Metals right now, and you're attracting some new interest because of the successes you've had in the past. Yeah, a lot of them stayed on board. We do have some new shareholders in Silvercrest Metals, and they were really watching to jump on to the bandwagon and our success early on. So in my opinion, you really look at this market right now. When you're out there investing, you want to look at proven management team that has a niche, which Silvercrest Mines and now Silvercrest Metals has. It's the phased approach that we take. It's a wise business approach. And you really want to conserve your cash like we do. And that really attracts the investors in this market or any other market, but definitely in a bear market. And you're at 
25 cents right now. It's a very attractive potential entry point. We're trading pretty well. Uh, there's been a, a good amount of liquidity in the company, which I'm happy to see. But we are trading under cash value currently. So that's uh, something to be emphasized. And I've proven time and time again, and my management team has to have success. Silvercrest Mines was started in 2003. It made its discovery in Sonora, Mexico in 2006, and we took that share price from about 30 cents to $3 over the course of about 10 years as we developed that story, and I just want to do it again. Well, I have no doubt that you will, Eric. I've been speaking with Eric Fear. He's the president and CEO of Silvercrest Metals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SIL. Speaking from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. Eric, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Thank you for having me, Ellis. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com, and download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin, continuing my reporting here from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference, and I'm speaking with the president of Gold Source Mines, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GXS, and in the U.S. as GXSFF, Yana Sitos. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Ellis. Thanks that uh, you gave me this opportunity to talk again. Well, we spoke at the Silver Summit in San Francisco just a few months ago, of course, you are a gold producer, or shall I say we are about a week away from you becoming a gold producer. That's very significant, and tell us why. As I said, uh, that's a great introduction. So normally people know me that I'm a happy guy, and I see the glass uh, half full rather than half empty. But I couldn't be happier than uh, being on this show here and talk just a week before we switch on the power of our processing plant. Newly built mine in Guyana at Eagle Mountain. So you're absolutely right. I hope uh, first poor to happen within February. We initiate what we call the commissioning phase that will last something between a month and two months and before we call it commercial production. But everything is ready. As I mentioned, in San Francisco, we were probably 90, 85 to 90 percent. Now we have absolutely everything ready in terms of equipment, processing plant. The whole team is on site and next Tuesday we are switching on. So much of the work is done basically and going forth, you're not going to have to go to the till for production costs more last. Yeah, the real work starts now, however. We we definitely built the mine and we are very proud to say that we did that on time and under budget. That's something that is extremely rare these days, okay, in this industry. So, whatever we said the last two years in terms of deliveries of product or what we are planning to do from the mining concessions to environmental reports to mine construction, we deliver on that. But the real work starts now because now we have to prove to everybody that this is a viable good operation. And what I mean with that is uh, the operating cost or expected operating cost, if you remember I mentioned, will be at the range of $480 per ounce, which will make Golsos mines probably in the lowest quartile of this production cost on, on between other peer companies. Across the globe. Across right? the globe. Yeah, across the globe. And, and, and Guyana is an English-speaking country, robust, uh, with good regime, and uh, you know we have no issues at all, uh, not only in the community, but uh, with the government or on the environment side or social issues at all. So what I say here is we have to prove now that we come to that kind of operating cost, and we are very confident we will do that. And uh, when we put all Canadian overheads, because we haven't expanded that cost much, so we will definitely produce other $620 per ounce all in, and that covers sustaining capital and everything. 
and therefore you know even if gold price although i see good dynamics on the current gold price but let's say if we come at the, some other round of pressure on gold price still we will be very robust to expand the mine who's your market right now for the offtake from this mine basically who's buying gold in our case uh, we will sell uh, dore 90 92% dore we will sell to the guyana government we have done already the arrangement they pay you full price effectively they take their royalty and they pay you full london price twice a day prices updated guyana I it again is the only English-speaking country in South America with British law, a very stable secular democracy, and that's why I bought this asset five years ago. It's not only about your technical details, in other words, or your deposit, the grade, the recoveries, all of that. It's also about all the other part that comes. How can you deliver the goal? How far you are from power? How far you are from water? Do you have illegal miners on top of your property? And when we started Eagle Mountain work, we saw that we have very little risk around us, okay? Now, don't misunderstand me here. There is risk in mining business on every project, okay? But here we have a story that we believe we deliver what we said, we are going to do it. And I encourage your listeners to stay tuned on Golsos. Just check our webpage, check our news as we will keep coming. A lot of good news will come, obviously, in the coming few months with the gold production. You know, just stay and understand what is the story and how much we will expand from cash flow rather than diluting shareholders. This is a very key message and the model we will operate and I hope more people take it. It's really the Achilles heel of these junior companies and the venture capitalists is constantly expanding the company in terms of diluting selling more shares here we have a plan to and that's why the operating cost comes so important to leave enough profit margin to use this cash flow to expand bring the leach reactor down the line move more plants increase capacity in other words so organic growth from the company well you have a very successful management team and you're part of that team give our audience some background on you if you don't mind and also that management team which has seen success in the past Thanks for the opportunity on that one. We have more than 200 years of experience, collective experience between the board of directors and the management. Effectively, I don't know if people followed from your listeners, Silvercrest Mines, a very successful story that recently was sold or the Santa Elena mine was sold in Mexico to First Majestic. But the total management of Silvercrest plus me, that I had nothing with Silvercrest, obviously is the management of gold source. So Eric Fear, our COO, is a great engineer engineer. It's a guy that I have blind faith and when I'm praying, I'm praying more on his health than mine. So just to give you an idea, Scott Driver and other people are incredible team. Our Guyanese team is very experienced. They are all ex-Newmont and I am gold people. So even the workers we have there, I mean, engineering firms, independent engineering firms that came to build the mine, they told us they have been impressed from the quality of the total team. When it comes to me, I'm coming from the BHP Billiton background. So I worked for 19 years from the biggest miner as a geophysicist, chief geophysicist for some Americas, but also nine years as a business development manager. Therefore, risk mitigation and analysis is probably the bread and butter in my life. But BHP is BHP and obviously they build big mines. Uh, what we try to do here is create value for shareholders, all shareholders, not only our big shareholders. And up to now, we are very successful in doing that. And what are we trading at now? We are trading between 23 and 25 cents uh, in the last week. We have seen increased liquidities. 
it seems like obviously in a very challenging market people pay attention to a good story like Goldsource and from the point of view of the expectations I guess you know obviously we start production now people are tuned to see you know your first technical results and operating costs and so on but we have very loyal shareholders I've got shareholders since 2005 and the IPO stage of this company so <laughs> it's incredible thank you well, as a new sponsor of the Yellow Smart Report, I look forward to many more conversations during the next few months. Thank you so much for joining us today in the program. Ellis, thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity to talk to your listeners, okay? You do a great job. Thanks. Thank you. I've been speaking with Yanis Sitos, the president of Gold Source Mines Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GXS, and the U.S. on the OTC as GXSFF. Reporting from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference, I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brad Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCY on the OTCQX and ONC on the TSX. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolice and its proprietary formulation of the human Reovirus and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. Brad, welcome back to the program. Oh, thank you, Alf. You just released some news announcing first patients treated in a phase 1b study in advanced pancreatic cancer. Now, these patients have advanced pancreatic cancer. We've discussed that Reolysin has been designed to treat advanced cases. What's significant about this particular study and what can we look forward to in the future? Well, this is the first time that we've combined Reolysin, which is our product based on a, you know, a live virus, and combining it with one of the new class of drugs that are called checkpoint inhibitors. And what checkpoint inhibitors do is basically unblock or, or open the eyes of your immune system to tumors. Tumors are very effective at camouflaging themselves from the immune system. These new drugs actually sort of take that away and it lets the immune system see a tumor again and help kill it. What Realicin does is actually enhances the activities of these new drugs, these checkpoint inhibitors. And certainly we're very excited about the prospects um, now treating patients with Realicin and them combined together for the first time. And so we treated our first few patients down in San Antonio in Texas and uh, again, because it's pancreatic cancer, it raises the ante because pancreatic cancer outcomes are so poor. And so we're all basically holding our breath waiting to see what the first results from this clinical study are, which will come quite quickly. So for all stages, as I understand, with regard to pancreatic cancer, it's pretty near fatal. So this sort of study is extremely important, isn't it? Pancreatic cancer is just something you don't want to ever say to a patient. I mean, it's just a terrible, debilitating disease that leads to death almost inevitably. And I mean, there's been some advances in putting off the disease for a while, but we're talking a while, we're talking months. And I think the entire industry is waiting for the next big leap forward. And I think using some kind of immune combination therapy of some form is going to be the case where we actually make a difference there. Instead of saying to somebody, instead of dying in six months, you're going to die in nine months, which is hugely valuable. I mean, three extra months means a lot to people. It's that next milestone, it's the next birthday, it's the next anniversary. It means something to people. To even people go, oh, what's three months? Well, three months is really important. But wouldn't it be nice to say to a patient, no, you're not going to have six months. You're going to live for three years or longer or five or the dream. You know, say to a pancreatic cancer patient, you're cured occasionally. That's really where we're headed with this area. And so the first time to our 
understanding that people are doing combined immune therapy in pancreatic cancer patients. I think this is going to attract a lot of attention from a lot of people and most importantly, hopefully from the patient's perspective. When might we hear something either way about this particular study? I would think that the majority of patients should be enrolled sometime this year, but we'll actually start to get data out before that. And that's one of the also exciting things about doing work with immune therapies is that there's all these kind of markers and special assays that you can do and take a look at the patient that can tell you if the actual this immune effect is actually happening long before you actually find out if they live longer. So you will have a very good sense, hopefully not too distant future this year, about how it's working. And again, that's, that's exciting. I mean, I'm used to waiting years, sometimes five, six, seven years to see if a therapy is working. And to say that we started in the calendar year and actually have information that same calendar year is pretty, pretty exciting. So from an investment point of view, let's talk dollars and cents for a moment. Of course, there's enormous value for a pancreatic cancer patient to live another three months or six months or a year or perhaps another five or 10 years and beyond. That would be a game changer. What kind of effect would this have? potentially on your company financially if there's success in this area. Can we talk about that? The real value adders in biotechnology, especially in oncology, is adding lifespan to patients. I mean, if we can demonstrate that there's a lifespan benefit to patients using real life, and that is one of the major sort of value drivers in biotechnology companies that look at oncology. And that event in itself is usually the signature event in a big change in valuation in companies. And so it's very important for us to be able to demonstrate that to our patients and to our shareholders. At this time, with everything that you have going on with regard to your company, you are doing research on several manifestations of cancer. Why do you believe that this particular company, along with others in the sector that are doing great research and, and having success are, are so potentially undervalued? Well, it's a general phenomenon in biotechnology that you seem to have a disconnect with what value is. Some companies, and good for them, that seem to have outrageous valuations on um, very little information. But there's a reason for that. I think it's because the message and the story is focused and it's relatively simple. And because it's focused like that, then people give them credit for that and good for them good for those companies and good for the prospects for the going forward. When you look at the commonality of companies that seem to be, quote, undervalued, there does tend to be, it's usually a more complicated discussion and it's a more complicated picture. Data might be a little more textured or whatever you want to call it. And that makes it difficult for people to put their finger on what the real value is underneath. And I think those companies, and I think that includes us, tend to be valued at less. And so it's really our challenge and our job to try to focus people on the kind of core elements of what we're doing and the expectation is, is that when you get to that point, then you will see a valuation correction just by communicating that in an appropriate way. Well, it's not good enough, and I've always said this to people I know that are involved in, in running public companies, it's not good enough to be doing your job with the business. Of course, that's fantastic. You need a legitimate business to be a public company and, and to go out and ask for money. But it's important to draw attention to the company and let everybody know what you're doing. If you've got a potential solution for cancer, in fact, us solution for cancer. It doesn't do any good if nobody knows about it with regard to investing in the company. You're on the road a lot, making sure that people learn about your company. The whole communicating with your shareholder base and with potential new shareholders is the primary job of public company CEOs. And it's no different in biotechnology than it is in other industries. I think where the difference in biotechnology is, is that our message virtually changes every week. As you get more information and whatever, you have to incorporate that in. It's critical that you go out and you communicate 
face-to-face with your investing group or whatever audience or whatever you want to call it. And that's what we do. And that's what I do. It's easy in a lot of ways because what we do is so exciting. And it's difficult in a way because it does require a, a lot of time and energy to do that. But it's an absolutely essential core role of biotech publicly traded CEO. Are you getting any kind of feedback from some of the people that you've been treating over the years? You've over 1,100 to date? You know, it's interesting out of every study, we're not supposed to know who the patients are in studies as a company. I mean, that's sort of a basic tenet of the business. But usually at some point when studies are done, almost every one of our studies, a patient will contact us. A patient will go, hey, I was on your X study and hey, I'm still here. And so you, you get face-to-face contact with the patients for the first time. And usually after when the study is after it's completed, it's interesting almost on every study that we have, we have at least one, sometimes a number of very long-term survivors. And this goes back to our very original studies. It is an absolute delight when I, sometimes my yearly phone calls or yearly visits, they usually show up out of the blue in my office. And we sit down and I'm looking at this person that was supposed to be dead, you know, five or 10 years ago, and they're fine. That is the best, best present, the best day of my life every year. And I get that over and over again. And it's it's absolutely wonderful to have that kind of contact. The site number and the patient number, so I'll be like 13-107B or something like that. And then you get this personalized face-to-face interaction with somebody who's apparently derived benefit from your product. It's really an amazing experience. I imagine it provides a, a lot of motivation for you when you're out in the road and also for your, your management team. Everybody knows that they're affecting lives of people that have been afflicted as well as their extended families and friends. You're actually uh, bringing joy to people that you most likely have no idea who they are. It's a very integral part of why people work in companies like ours to have that kind of feedback and kind of support. Honestly, I mean, we're a, a big industry looking at cancer research and from a company perspective because I can't speak of it anywhere else. Every company I know, there's a strong element of that's why people are there. We're here to get a product out. Yes, we're here to get a return to our shareholders. Yes, we're all those things with the business side. Deep underneath that is the, wow, we're helping people out. And, you know, when my staff and my colleagues get access to that kind of information, you can just see what it does to them. The spring is back in their step and the joy is in their life. That is, that is what makes their day. It's a very strong undercurrent in our industry, both the biotech companies and the big pharma companies. I have to say my big pharma colleagues are just like us. They get a kick out of helping people. It's coincidental in a nice way, but it's also good for our businesses. Well, Brad, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I look forward to another conversation in the very near future. Thanks so much for joining us again today on the program. Thank you very much, Alice. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCY on the OTCQX. Listen to the segment again on our website or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Remember, all of the companies you're hearing about today have paid us for the opportunity to be reviewed by you on this program. Do your own research before investing in anything mentioned here. Start by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin today reporting from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Come up here every year, January and also June, to meet with my friends, talk to companies, and hang out. And one of the people that I visit with occasionally is a man from one of my hometowns. His name is Mickey Fulp. He's the mercenary geologist. He's quite a following in the sector, and it's always a pleasure to speak with Mickey on the program. Mickey, welcome to the program. Hi, Alice. Good to be here. I'm wondering, let's go back about five, six years ago. If we saw gold at $1,100 an ounce, we'd be extremely excited and we'd be investing in companies with a valuation of a lot more than what they're trading at right now. What are your thoughts about that? 
Well, the price of gold probably about five years ago started making its big run. In actuality, I thought it got way ahead of itself. I, I thought 1900 gold was ridiculous. It went exponential, and when things go exponential, they will go parabolic. So it came down on the other end. But we got to remember, it started this run at $400, or 300 actually, in, what, 2003? Finally got above 300 and stuck. So the present valuation, 1100 I think, is fair value for gold. As an investor, what are you doing about it right now? I'm sitting on the sidelines for the most part. I've taken some profits when companies make little runs and I can take money off the table. I think you should always take profits, especially in a bear market like this. So taking some profits, I am being very cautious about where I deploy new money. Basically, I take money from profits and I'll put that back in the market when I find things that are compelling. But the days of pure speculation in this business are at least temporarily suspended. <laughs> at least. So you're a more conservative investor than you've always been, or have you always been a conservative investor, even in a speculative market? I've always been a very conservative speculator in a speculative market. From the get-go, we designed a trading methodology that applied conservative metrics to this very speculative industry. In other words, uh, take profits back in the good old days when things double, sell half, take all your money off the table, etc. So the methodology really hasn't changed, but now instead of looking for those doubles all the time, I will take interim profits to take money off the table and reduce my cost basis. Do you think the days of doubles or five bangers or ten bangers are over, or is it just temporary? Well, I think there's still doubles and fives and ten baggers in the market. I think we've seen some of those over the last year. There's much fewer of them. The question, will this industry recover? Absolutely. The world needs metals, the world needs mining, the world needs energy, it needs oil and gas. You know, we've got 85 million more people on the planet every year. Most of those are in undeveloped parts of the world or the so-called second-tier emerging market countries. And I think that's where growth will be. We will continue to grow shy of a complete economic collapse, but we still have 85 million more people that now with the internet know what we have and they want that. So I'm bullish on the long-term future of energy growth, the long-term future of copper growth. So this is just a, a temporary boom and bust cycle in the mining business, which we've always seen before and always comes back. This is still a sector where most people are completely unaware of the investment potential and have never invested in it. Is that correct? Well, I don't think it's investment potential. It's speculation potential. Investment implies that a safe place to put your money that you expect a constant return. So this is a speculative business. It always has been and it will always continue to be. Whether it will continue to be a speculative business for the Toronto Venture Exchange, I think is equivocal now. I'm not sure the Toronto Venture Exchange will survive. I am certain it will not survive in its present form, so it needs to be revamped or it needs to be replaced, and I think we're seeing the beginnings of that at this stage. I wonder if that purge was intentional, the purge that hurt a lot of these mining companies, which in my opinion probably yours, many of them had no value anyway. Well, very few of them have any real value. The problem was the Toronto Venture Exchange set up a protocol that allowed companies to proliferate with 
capital pool companies with the abilities to take shells and the same promoters take shells and kind of revamp them and roll them back and start over again. So that model has really hurt the business. We've got way too many companies. There's not enough good deposits, enough projects in the world to support even the number of companies now. And the stock exchange has been very reluctant to uh, delist those companies, although under their rules they are obligated to do so because they have a conflict of interest. They get fees from the companies and they're a publicly listed company owned by big banks in Canada. So it's a bit of a, a quandary in my opinion. You mentioned copper just a few minutes ago, something that potentially you could be excited about. Are you excited about it now? Are you making any investments in that area? The world needs copper. That's never going to go away. I'm always looking for good copper companies. I would prefer new copper companies to come on the scene. This is the time that smart money gets deployed in distressed assets. There's a lot of things available in the world. You know, I don't necessarily think that the depression in copper price is a short-term deal. It may be a medium-term deal, but we still use on a yearly basis in the world around three and a half percent more copper. That was down last year, but we still used two and a half percent more last year, so the demand for copper continues. Always looking for good copper companies. I remember uh, close to 10 years ago, perhaps, maybe it was eight years ago, the speculation and the demand for, at least the perception of the demand for copper was very, very high, and it was my perception that there wasn't enough to meet that demand. Is there enough copper to meet the potential demand? China's still growing at a rate of 6% a year, no matter what anybody says. India's coming alive Absolutely. here in the U.S. You know, I don't believe we're going to downsize. We're going to continue to consume. So what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think the copper market continues to grow. I think, as with most commodities, we got a bit ahead of ourselves. Supply was increasing to meet projected demand. That demand slowed a bit. The growth still is occurring. The growth has slowed, so we have a temporary oversupply of copper. That will be corrected very quickly. The world uses 60,000 tons of copper a day. If you look at official stockpiles, we still have less than about, we have maybe about 10 days of world production stockpiled in surplus copper. So kind of do the math. Copper bottomed, I think, last week. I hope it bottomed at a buck 96. I hope oil bottomed at $26. They both bounced considerably. Copper's over two bucks now. So, but even at $2 copper, a significant amount of world production loses money. That production will will come off at some point, and then we have a supply shortage again, and the price will go back up. I just don't know the timing of all that. You've mentioned oil and gas twice in this conversation, so I have to call you out on it. Are you speculating? Are you willing to? Or how about a prognostication for the next couple of years? Well, the world is overwhelmed with a glut of oil right now, and with the distressed prices, what's happened. You would think that production would come off, but an economic production would be shut in. Au contraire. Find me a country in the world, name me a country in the world that did not produce more oil last year in this time of distressed prices, because there are so many countries in the world that they're like banana republics, except they're black gold republics. And they've got balance of payments, they've got social services, they've got to run their 
unstable, corrupt, or unfriendly governments to the Western world. So they have increased production. The production increased in the U.S., in Russia, in Canada, in China, in Brazil, in Nigeria, in Saudi Arabia, just Venezuela, Mexico probably came off a bit because they're running out of oil. But that might be one of the few countries in the world didn't produce more oil last year. So, giving that paradigm, when's production going to come off? I have no idea. You know, we could be saddled with a low oil price for quite some time, and that's of concern because oil runs the world. I think a lot of the distress in other commodities in the world, especially things like copper, where growth demand continues, is a trickle-down effect from the oil price. Are you speculating in that area? I'm looking right now. If I would deploy money right now in the oil business. Now, I own a couple of oil companies. They're still giving me dividends, but I would be looking at big oil. I think that's where the recovery will happen quicker. So go find a big oil company, a blue chip oil company, and put money into that. That would be my target right now. I've covered lithium companies on this program, more so now than previously. Is it a flavor or is it something of interest that's here to stay? Uh, It's the flavor of the year in my opinion. It's the second lithium bubble. We've already seen one that failed in 2010 to 2012. This is all driven by speculation that Elon Musk is going to sell a half a million electric cars in the U.S. in 2020. And I am of a strong opinion that is not going to happen, especially when I can pull up to the pump in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and buy gas today at about 70. And there's rumors or there's analysts that say it goes as low as a dollar. So what's the motivation for people to buy an expensive electric car that, by the way, has a bigger carbon footprint than most gasoline-powered vehicles. It's all driven by the speculation, especially in Nevada, that there's going to be a gigafactory demand in Reno for lithium. I just don't think it's going to happen. That said, I own a lithium company. It used to be a gold company in Nevada. Now it's a lithium company. I'm very happy to speculate in that. Which you one know, is it? Nevada Sunrise Gold. So You come from New Mexico, but before that you grew up in Missouri. New Mexico and Missouri are both ethanol-producing states. Is ethanol dying too? I would hope so, because ethanol has never been energy It's energy negative, so it costs more money to grow that corn and process it than the energy you derive from it. And that's the number one. Number two, it's bad for an internal combustion engine. You're burning 10% alcohol. So, you know, that's a subsidized industry supported by congressmen from the Midwest in the significant corn-growing states. So I personally hope that goes away. You had me thinking about catalytic converters through our discussion about ethanol. What are your thoughts on PGMs at the moment? I think they're oversold. I think that platinum at 820 or 30 or $40 an ounce is a compelling buy. My choice for buying physical metals for the last year or more, maybe year and a half at least, has been platinum over gold because the ratio is out of whack. So platinum's undervalued with respect to gold in a normal paradigm. That said, where's the world's platinum palladium coming from? South Africa and Russia for the most part. We do have some production in U.S. and Canada and various other places, but I'm quite surprised that PGM prices have remained so low for so long. We're going to make more cars 
worldwide this year than we've ever made before. And, you know, you've got to have platinum and palladium for those catalytic converters. Mickey, tell our listeners about your website. Mercenarygeologist.com. You can sign up for free. We run a sponsor model, so all my work is free. And for my subscribers, my stock picks are free too. And you can also tune in on mercenarygeologist.fm. This interview will be on that. And you can join 52,000 plus Twitter followers at Mercenary Geo. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, well, we work it. We work at it. We have fun with Twitter. It's all over the place of things that interest me. It's not all about mining, but yeah, it's uh and and we have still have 6300 subscribers to the newsletter. Fantastic. Well, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I look forward to visiting with you on your ranch next time I'm in New Mexico. Thanks for joining me today on the program. I hope you call me and come by for a beer and some beef raised on the farm. Or some fish that you happen to have in your freezer. Well, we do have a lot of fish in the freezer. Everybody probably knows that fishing is my passion. Looking forward to it, Mickey. Thanks again. Thank you, Ellis. My pleasure. Find the logos of all our sponsors on the homepage of our website. Click on them and learn more about our client companies. EllisMartinReport.com. Once again, this is me, your pal, Ellis Martin, sitting at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. And I'm with a colleague and a friend, although that's probably a one-sided assumption here. Uh, I don't know if he likes me or not, but I like him. He's a nice guy and a talented singer. The Tom Jones of the province of British Columbia, Mr. Nick Nicholas. Nick, how are you doing today? The Tom Jones. No, do I have to do a Tom Jones songs now? <laughs> Listen, Ellis, I have known you for many, many years. I've been in this mining industry since 1980, and I've been in four of these cycles where we had a bottom and then a euphoric part of the cycle. The euphoric part of the cycle is always when people start buying, and while they should be buying when things are at the bottom. This particular conference is a wonderful conference. To me, it is a great money maker. People that are here and are looking for companies to buy into, 70% of the companies that are here will throw off big money in 2018-19 if they buy into it now. Of course, a lot of people are loath to buy in at the bottom, but these people that are here, most of them are you know, buying, looking for companies to buy at the bottom. So that's where things are at. I, I think this conference is probably one of the most important conferences they have been to and will be in at right now. And like I said, 2018-19 is when they will see the benefits. It's not too easy to see that right now, you know. So are you recommending that our audience buy whatever they can, buy good companies at these unbelievably low bargain prices, even when the price of gold is around $1,100 an ounce, could drop down to 1000 but still compare that with prices back in 2005 and 2006 when the stocks were doing better and gold wasn't quite as high. Are you recommending that people just buy, hold, and forget about it for three years? Well, first of all, your last question was buy gold. No, I do not believe that you should be buying gold. I do believe that gold will go much higher starting at the end of the year. Although, and I've said this to you, we have not seen the low in gold yet. It will still have to break through a 1,000, but that's immaterial. The time to buy is now. People should be buying, most people 
do not know how to pick D'Lo. I just happen to be somebody that, uh, with the help of uh, Martin Armstrong, who you know I've followed for many, many years, basically says to you, we are close to the bottom. The bottom is not there yet, but we are close to it. But should you buy now, of course, you should be around here looking for companies. And then I say to people, yes, you can buy 70% of these companies around here and make big money by 2018-19 because you are buying at a low maybe not d low but it's immaterial i mean how low is low i may be right about gold still having to break through a thousand or i may be wrong but it is a low right now so people should be buying yes for sure since we're not necessarily talking about gold per se any particular type of metal or company, or does it matter? No, it doesn't matter. When, I, when I'm talking about gold going below a thousand and so on, I'm also talking about the other metals, be it copper, be it zinc, be it lead. I love zinc, by the way. And I talk about base metal companies as well. So definitely, there's one company that should be bought right now, unless you want me to mention the name of the company. They do not have a booth here. But that's a very interesting company. John Kaiser has been recommending it steadily, and that is uh, SCY, Scandium. Scandium mining, which is <laughs> right now at a price that... At, this Scandium is a whole different thing. If I can recommend one company outside of the companies that are here, then that's one. Are you a shareholder of this company? Yes, I am. I made money on it already, and I sold, I think, 23 cents or something like that, and now I've been steadily buying it back. Now, of course, you're not telling anyone to buy the stock, per se. You're recommending that our audience take a serious look at it, correct? Oh, absolutely. I'm not an advisor. That's a sure thing. And regardless of anything, it doesn't matter what people should always do their own due diligence. No matter who they talk to, do your own due diligence, just verify what you've been told, look for very strong management. If you can trust management, that is most of the battle. If you get good management, they will find the projects. Then if that management also adds marketing to it, uh, investor relations or name branding, whatever, uh, whatever you want to call it, if they add that to that, then you've got a very strong three-pillar platform. Without all three of the management project and marketing, you don't have a proper platform. Speaking of marketing, tell us about Mining Interactive. Uh, Mining Interactive used to market. I used to be a, I'm still a promoter um, for all intents and purposes, but uh, I do not represent any companies at the moment. There are some companies that have asked me to come and work with them. Some of them I've turned down very flatly. Some of them I'm in discussion with, but my price is pretty high, so most of these companies cannot afford me right now, which I appreciate. But if I can get the right company that uh, gives me the right kind of options, you know, then I will go to work for them. But it's got to be a company that has the three-pillar platform. Without it, I have no interest. Well, Nick, it's always a pleasure to see you, and thanks for coming on the program today. Martin, it's been a pleasure. And people that are listening to you uh, have been for many years. And now is the time they really should be listening to you because now is the time the resource sector is ready, ready and able. I've been speaking with Nick Nicholas of Mining Interactive. Once again, I'm Ellis Martin from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. Thank you. Welcome to Car Kicks. I'm Bob Lang. Everybody loves anniversaries. Well, most people. I'm referring to automotive anniversaries. Chevrolet had their 100th, Ford had their 100th, Mopar their 75th, Mustang had its 50th, and now Jeep is having its 75th anniversary. In celebration, FCA is creating special editions. You knew they would. 
They'll be easy to spot with green exteriors and satin bronze wheels with orange accents. According to FCA, they'll have unique interiors and 75th anniversary badges. Of course, you should begin to spot them in showrooms in the not-too-distant future. In fact, some may be there now. And what comes with anniversary special editions? Well, an anniversary festival get-together. The Bantam Jeep Heritage Festival is running June 10th through the 12th, 2016. Save the date and start making your plans now to come to Butler, Pennsylvania, birthplace of the Jeep. Watch for even more special events celebrating the Jeep's 75th anniversary to begin popping up in the near future. You know how to Google for that. It's time now for the Car Kicks Car Quiz, an event intended as an introduction to the off-road sport for newcomers that is one of the most basic and takes the form of a course with gates that is carefully laid out so that it requires definite skills to drive but carries no risk of damage to the vehicle or injury to the driver is A. Dune bashing B. Green laning C. Tyro trialing or D. Rock crawling We'll have the answer in just a moment. Just like to take a moment and call out carparts.com. It isn't just a website, it's a team of people dedicated to getting you the right part at the best price. My experience with them was excellent. The part arrived damaged from shipping. It was expensive and heavy. Carparts.com didn't miss a beat. With one contact to customer service, a new part was flying on its way fast. Try carparts.com. They have over a million parts and accessories. They have high-performance parts that'll help your engine churn out more power, or just that hard-to-find replacement part. Their large selection of parts combined with their user-friendly interface makes shopping easy. Finding your needed components is a snap because of the features on their site. They offer a low price guarantee as well with every product that they offer. Shipping is fast. As I said, my experience was absolutely stress-free. Excellent customer service and no sweat problem resolution. I endorse them as a quality provider. Use carparts.com next time you need a part for your daily driver, hot rod, classic, or off-road vehicle. Carparts.com. And now here's the answer to your car kicks car quiz. The answer is C, a Tyro trial. The name comes from the Latin word Tyro, meaning new recruit. Tyro trialing is intended as an introduction to the sport for newcomers or even children. Vehicle modifications are not allowed. Some organizers even ban the fitting of different types of tires to those that the vehicle left the showroom with. That's your Car Kicks Car Quiz. Toyota, known in management circles for the Toyota Way, is about to turn the corporate management aspect of its operations on its ear. According to a report in the Nikkei Business newspaper, Toyota's considering grouping management around products rather than geography. There's also hoping this new structure will groom future Toyota management. The in-house groupings will be passenger vehicles, compact cars, commercial vehicles, and Lexus on its own. Currently, they have things arranged into two geographic groups. Like many automakers before them, Toyota has rolled out a new global architecture, which means their cars have common underpinnings and common components to cut costs. This practice dates way back to the very beginnings of automobile manufacture. Toyota is hoping to have half of all its vehicles on new cost-saving platforms by the end of the decade. Meanwhile, back in Volkswagen... In their shoot-yourself-in-the-other-foot department, it was announced that VW is looking to expand its offerings in the Islamic state of Iran and are currently there in talks with potential importers. BMW is a little more cautious waiting to see how things unfold politically and economically. Iran was shut off from the world market after the 1979 Islamic Revolution, and Audi was not yet known as being an upscale luxury brand. It certainly is a curious move for a company whose reputation in the United States has slid below politicians and door-to-door salesmen. The Scottsdale Auction Week happens the last part of January and is pretty much mecca for classic, 
Hot Rod, and Specialty Car Fanatics, it pulled no punches this year. Even Russo and Steele had a pair of 429 Boss Mustangs. Of course, all the other auctioneers, including Barrett-Jackson, had a cornucopia of classics, hot rods, and special interest cars and trucks to choose from. If you've never been to Scottsdale Auction Week, you need to have that on your bucket list. It should be at the very top. Mecham Auctions has been building their Kissimmee, Florida show over the last few years and had 3,000 cars, 3,000 in one giant auction, also in late January. Now, if they could just get them coordinated, January would be every car guy's vacation month. That's it for Car Kicks. I'm Bob Lang. David Morgan is an expert on silver, gold, and precious metals investments. He's a world-renowned lecturer appearing on CNBC and the Fox Business Channel. He's an author having penned Get the Skinny on Silver Investing. And Mr. Morgan is a regular contributor and friend of the Ellis Martin Report. This is an interesting week. It started off at least with a, a continuation of a, of a tank in the stock market. Are you nervous about anything right now? I'm nervous about the year 2016, Ellis. I really think that... This is oh, probably a watershed year. I know I've said that, I think, a year or two ago, but it's it's coming to the fore. I mean, the stock market usually has a pretty good lift in January. They're not worldwide. And even the, um, let's say, proponents of uh, the market always goes up, long-term investing stock market at all are starting to get nervous here. There's a couple of points chart-wise, if they're broken to the downside on large volume, would be very good uh, indicators that it has further to go to the downside. And I think that's the situation comparable to 2008 or too soon to tell? Well, too soon to tell, but bringing up 2008, you know, it's been my strong belief and contention and others as well that we never really recovered from 2008. And everything that's been done from that point until now has been sort of do the best that we can, throw out a bunch of funny money, reliquify the banks, promote the stock market. Stock market's gone up. Let's look at a fact. But overall, the real physical economy has deteriorated. There's been some ups and downs, but overall, the recovery has not taken place. What do you think is going to happen in Texas long term due to the oil route that we're seeing or we have been seeing for a while? Well, if you look at a real free market, what you're going to see is you see all the malinvestment go away. And you're going to see the people that have capital come in and either buy the assets if they're worth buying, or they just don't ever come back onto the marketplace. And you'll get a much firmer, tighter, more efficient market. That's what should happen or could happen. Under the uh, framework that we now have in uh, the United States and basically on a global basis, where there's these bailouts, bail-ins, deferments, uh, extensions, uh, whatever. It'll get a little bit messier than that. But the overall underlying trend will be what I outlined. You'll see basically the malinvestment go away, more efficiencies come in the market, then depending on what the market does. I'm a pretty firm believer that you know there's lots out in our future. In fact, it's probably here today as far as uh, energy sources are concerned, but that doesn't mean that they're readily available or nor will they be necessarily, which means we've got to look at the primary source, which of course is oil. Because of that fact, then we're going to have to see what happens as things get straightened out. The inefficiencies are taken off the market, the market becomes more efficient, and what the demand level does in the future and it could increase which means you might see you know some price pressure to the upside over time i'm not an oil expert i don't analyze it like i do the commodity sector or i should say the metal sector 
I don't think you're going to see these prices remain at this level at infinitum. The oversupply of maybe a million, million and a half barrels a day is uh, enough to drive the prices down. All markets move at the margin. Uh, Art Berman did an interview with Chris Martinson recently that I listened to twice just so I could basically hone in and not miss anything. It is what it is. I mean, I think he's very forthright on what the oil situation is, and he's, in my view, one of the best and one of the most truthful. It makes you stop and pause and realize that this oversupply, which exists, isn't that big of an oversupply. So it could change before anyone knows it, so to speak. I'm a little more nimble and a little more bullish on the oil sector than most people are at this point in time. Well, it would take a simple incident to change what's going on in the Middle East, right? And change the price of oil. It wouldn't take a lot. Absolutely true. And a lot of my brethren, I say brethren in a very general, broad sense that are in the newsletter industry, have already alluded to that. I've already seen some rather exaggerated claims like, you know, $500 oils will go across the, you know, right around the corner. You know, that's kind of the gist of it. The point is that, yeah, it is precarious. It's in a very unstable region of the uh, planet. Of course, oil is pumped all over the place, but primarily gets so much from the Middle East. It's a tinderbox and it's not getting better. So certainly something could disrupt the supply rather easily. And if that were to occur, you'd see the market probably overreact to the upside. So certainly you have to keep that in mind. I've been speaking with the silver guru, David Morgan. His website is themorganreport.com. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. In Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.